thank you for the joy and the privilege of worship. And we're glad to be together this evening to to sing your praises, to hear your word read uh, and preached, and to receive from you by your Holy Spirit. We ask, gracious God, that you will speak into our hearts and transform us more into the likeness of your Son, who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, thank you very much for your welcome. Suzanne and I love coming to Rotherham Evangelical Church, and not because you serve cake, although you do serve cake, and very nice cake. It's because we find you constantly as a church or in good heart, where the gospel is central to you as a community. Now, unfortunately, we can't say that about every church, but we can certainly say it about Rotherham Evangelical Church, and as well, you sing wonderfully. It's true, I'm a Welshman, so you can take that as a compliment, because I've heard some good singing in the past, and you rank, you're up there with the best. It's good to sing the Lord's praises. Now, I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that this week is the last week of the church's year. Or perhaps you do need me to tell you that this is the last week of the church's year. In some traditions, uh, some Christian traditions, including my tradition, which is the Anglican tradition, we have a lectionary, and uh, it gives readings, set readings for the course of the year. And during the course of the year, there are the various Christian festivals of Advent, Christmas, we have the season of Lent, Easter, Pentecost, and, and so on. And the church's year for us doesn't begin on January the 1st. It begins on Advent Sunday. And Advent Sunday is next Sunday. I'm sure you will mark Advent Sunday when we prepare to celebrate the coming of Christ during his first Advent, born as a baby in Bethlehem. But to look beyond that day to his coming again in glory at the end of time when he comes to judge the living and the dead and to celebrate as well that Christ comes to us on a daily basis by his word and his Holy Spirit. Jesus comes to us. He came to us uh, as a baby in Bethlehem, grew up to be the saviour of the world. He will come again in glory on that last day and he comes to us every day by his word and his Holy Spirit. So next Sunday, we will be marking the beginning of a new church year as we enter that wonderful, solemn season of uh, preparation, which we know as Advent. So today is the last Sunday in the church's year, and we look back right to the beginning of last year, and come right through the season, that all the themes and the seasons and the teaching that we've received, and we wrap it all up in one phrase. And the phrase is this. Jesus Christ is King. Jesus Christ is King. Today, in the Anglican tradition, we take the theme of Jesus Christ is King. Christ is King. It's lovely to meet some of our Iranian friends. I've forgotten your names already. I'm very sorry. You can remind me later. But I've got a name for you. It's a name of an Iranian gentleman. I hope I pronounce it correctly. You can tell me afterwards. Yusef Mordekhanai. Yusef Mordekhanai. I'm assuming the word Yusef is Joseph. Joseph. Yusef Mordekhanai. 
He was an Iranian pastor, a pastor of a church in Iran. A few years ago, he was sentenced to death by an Iranian court for apostasy. He dared, in the view of the court, to reject Islam, to declare that Jesus Christ is King, Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, in most Iranian countries, and, and I'm sorry, most Muslim countries, and most Muslims sadly would say this, that it is a capital offence for a, someone born a Muslim to reject Islam in favour of another religion. If a Muslim converts to Christianity, in the view of most Muslims, then that person is liable to the sentence of death. Yusuf Mordekhanai was sentenced to death for daring to convert from Islam to Christianity. He was sentenced to death for daring to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Fortunately for Yusuf, his case was publicized and it was taken up by various human rights uh, organizations across the world. And through international pressure, the court relented and found him guilty of the lesser crime of evangelizing Muslims. He was imprisoned, and after two to three years, he was released. I don't know what's happened to him now. I pray to God that he is safe. But it should be said that for many other Christians in Iran, and indeed many other Christians in Muslim-majority countries, but not just Muslim-majority countries, countries like North Korea, for Christians in such countries as those, their plight remains unchanged. They are in prison, and they are suffering for their faith, for daring to name Jesus Christ as Lord. For some Christians, worshipping Christ the King is costly. Now, as Christians here at Rotherham Evangelical Church, by definition, because we are Christians, by definition, we acknowledge Jesus Christ as King. We go further and we say, Jesus is King of Kings and he is Lord of Lords. For us, Jesus Christ is the one whom we worship and whom we serve with our lives. And Jesus Christ is the one whom we believe will one, one day the whole world will worship. St. Paul, writing to Christians in Philippi, writes, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We believe that one day, Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. Every knee will bow to him and acknowledge that he is Lord. But we don't wait for that day. We acknowledge him to be Lord of King of Kings and Lord of Lords right now. We worship Christ the King. Why? Why do we worship Christ as our King and indeed the King of creation? Well, we worship Jesus Christ as, as king of creation because he is the one who reigns supreme. Now, Jesus' status as supreme sovereign is not obvious to everyone, is it? 
Because if it were, every knee would be bowing right now to Jesus Christ and naming him as Lord. But no, Christ's status as the supreme sovereign over all creation is not obvious to everyone, just as it wasn't obvious to Pilate. And you might like to take up your Bibles to John 18 and to that account of Jesus, or rather, yes, Jesus being interrogated by Pilate. Pilate was concerned that Jesus shouldn't be a king. He didn't want Jesus to be a king. Someone who was inclined to rebel against Rome. Someone who might raise a standard and inspire an insurrection against Roman rule in Israel. So Pilate asked Jesus, we read this in verse 33 of John 19, Are you the king of the Jews? Because Pilate had been told by the Jewish leaders that Jesus claimed to be a king, a king of the Jews, and was likely by implication, therefore, to raise a standard and to initiate a resurrection against Roman rule. He was guilty, therefore, the Jewish leaders were implying, of a capital offence worthy of crucifixion. And having heard all of this, Pilate was obliged to ask Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus reassured him. He reassured Pilate that he was not a rebel. He said to him, my kingdom is not of this world, but now my kingdom is from another place. Now that would have been music to Pilate's ears because the last thing he wanted was an insurrection. To Pilate, therefore, Christ's authority posed no threat to Roman rule. It was non-existent, or if it did exist, it was too weak to worry about. Some years ago, a Syrian diplomat who was renting a house in London near to the Syrian embassy was asked by the family who owned the house and was renting it to him to vacate the house. They wanted their, well it was a flat, they wanted their flat back. And the Syrian diplomat turned to that family and said, no, no I'm not going to leave. This may well be your house, but I'm living in it and I'm very comfortable. No, I'm not going to leave. And what is more, he said, I'm inclined to buy this house You might think it's yours, and I suppose it is for the time being. Make the most of it, because I intend to buy this house from you. The family tried to persuade and to reason with this diplomat, and in the end they had recourse to law. They took him to court, and the court said to the family, sorry, we can't help you, because the diplomat has claimed diplomatic immunity. We can't evict him from your flat. They became desperate. The family wondered what they might do. And in desperation, they petitioned Her Majesty the Queen. The Queen received a letter, read it, and called a meeting with her ministers. Don't know which ones they were, but they certainly turned up at her bidding. 
And she said to them in so many words, get it sorted. I'm trying to imagine the Queen saying that. But that's what she said in so many words. Get it sorted. And it was. Within days, the Syrian diplomat vacated the flat and the family was able to return. The Queen used her immense influence to win justice for her subjects. But we need to note this. It was only influence. As a constitutional monarch, the Queen has no authority. She can only exercise influence. And, but in contrast to that, in contrast to that, Jesus Christ is no constitutional monarch. He doesn't exercise mere influence. He doesn't say to people, do you mind doing this? It would be really helpful if you were to do this. And if the people decide, yes, we'll do that, or no, we won't do that. That's influence. Jesus Christ does not exercise influence. Jesus Christ exercises absolute authority because he is king of kings and he is lord of lords. John, in his revelation, Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, describes Jesus as the ruler of the kings of the earth. There is no monarch in our world, there is no president or prime minister, there is no self-appointed dictator in our world who has more authority than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And in the book of Daniel, we read this. Daniel speaking prophetically. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now as a Christian, I find those words very encouraging. The Lord that I serve is Lord King of Kings and he is Lord of Lords. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth whose kingdom will never pass away and will never be destroyed. Now, paradoxically, the evidence of Christ's majesty and authority is plain to see. Most people can't see it, but it is plain to see in the gospel accounts. Because as we read about Jesus' ministry, his going out and about in and around the towns and villages of 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 Israel, of, of Galilee, we see that the people were incredibly impressed with him. That's putting it mildly. The Bible says that he was, they were amazed by Jesus because Jesus spoke as one who had authority. They were in no doubt about Christ's status and his authority. They heard it and they witnessed it with their own eyes. By his authority, Jesus destroyed Satan's kingdom. He cast out demons. By his authority, Jesus controlled the power of nature. In English history, 
I'm a Welshman, but I know a little bit about English history. There was a king called Canute. And he had a hard time. Because he was surrounded by sycophants. I wish I was surrounded by sycophants, but I'm not. People who kept flattering him, saying how good he was. And he was getting absolutely fed up. Then one day, they surpassed themselves, these sycophants. And they said to King Canute, you know, King, your majesty... You're so wonderful and so powerful, you could stop the tide from coming in. So God bless him, what did he do? He took a chair, it might have been a throne, and he placed it below the tide mark on a beach. And he sat on it with his sycophantic courtiers standing behind him. And he said, let's see if this is true. That I can actually, as king, order the tide to stop at my feet. And they, he sat, they stood and they waited for the tide to come in. And sure enough, it came up and it lapped over the king's feet. And he proved to them, as if they needed to be proved to them, that he didn't have the authority over the tide. But the Christ that we serve, he stilled the wind and he stilled the waves. He has absolute authority over nature. Paul writing to Christians in Colossae, Christ, he writes, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation. The firstborn over creation. And just as the firstborn son in the ancient world enjoyed privileges and rights, so also Jesus Christ has rights in relation to all of creation. He has priority over creation. He has eminence and he has sovereignty over creation. Jesus Christ is the one who reigns supreme. Now Pilate, let's go back to Pilate. Jesus is standing before him. He's interrogating him. He's having a kind of trial. Pilate may have been reassured that Jesus posed no threat to his and to Rome's authority. But if he assumed that, then he would have been mistaken. Because Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He reigns supreme, and he reigns supreme over Pilate and over the Roman Empire. He reigns supreme over and above even the power of Rome. Now Christ's authority is not weak, and nor is it non-existent as Pilate would have assumed. It is absolute. There is no greater authorities than Christ's. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the Lord of all creation. And he is the king whom we serve. We worship Christ the king. Another question. How has Jesus Christ... Christ the King asserted his supremacy and his authority. Well, he's done it in an interesting way. And I'll tell you what it is straight away. I won't beat around the bush. Jesus Christ, Christ the King, has asserted his supremacy through love. He has asserted his supremacy through love. Pilate, the Roman procurator, maintained Romans' rule, not through love, 
but by tyranny. Roman rule was imposed by force of arms. Now, Pilate would, wouldn't have had more than 5,000 men under his command. And those 5,000 men would have been dispersed around the whole of Palestine. He would only have had a few hundred garrisoned in Jerusalem. So, if Jesus chose to lead a rebellion, then Pilate would have been hard-pressed to quell that rebellion. But to Pilate's relief, Jesus made it clear that his kingdom wasn't established, nor would it be maintained by military might. He said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. Servants, followers, angels perhaps. No. Jesus Christ would establish his kingdom. He would conquer people, not through tyranny, but through love. Jesus would not impose his rule on anyone. He would not bring people into his kingdom through tyranny, but he would bring his king, people into his kingdom by proving his love for them. And he proved his love for them. He proved his love for us all through his death on a cross. John chapter 12, Jesus said, But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. I don't know if you've ever been to St. Albans Church, but it's littered with crosses. One of the things that I say to children when they visit, usually in their school groups, count the crosses. There's one over there, there's one over there. None in this room, fair enough. But there's none over And they count them. That's, that's the church I've inherited, I have to say. We count the crosses. And then we do a tour of the church, and I, I, we come to the communion table. We're up in the sanctuary, at the far end where we have our communion table. I stand one side of the communion table, and the children will stand the other. And on the table, I will place a cross, a simple wooden cross. And I'll say to the children, even to the youngest, if ever you doubt that God loves you, look at the cross and be reminded that God loved you enough to send his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins so that when you repent and I, I unwrap these jargon words to five year olds it's okay I explain what repentance means I explain what sin means I say it to them ever so simply so that even the youngest can understand and they can understand because Jesus said unless you become like a little child you can never enter the kingdom of heaven oh yes they understand they tell me weeks later what I've told them. It registers. Such is the significance, the simplicity, the power of the cross. If ever you doubt that God loves you, look at the cross and be reminded that he loved you enough to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. So that when you repent of your sin, you might be forgiven and reconciled to your heavenly father but when i am lifted up from the earth i will draw all people to myself jesus said and he said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die earthly kings in the days of pilate the governor 
earthly kings and emperors would send their people to die for them. But Jesus Christ, the servant king, would die for his people. Christ's death for the sins of the world would prove his love for the world and make forgiveness of sins a reality for those who truly repent. Christ's kingdom of love would be open, is open, to everyone. So let me implore you, if you've not come to that place of repentance, to think about coming to that place. Think on the cross and be reminded of God's love for you and the opportunity that he has given you to be reconciled to God, your heavenly Father, through the forgiveness of sins. Now, Pilate was unaware that Jesus was the greatest usurper that Rome faced. He had no idea that the greatest threat to Roman rule was Jesus Christ. Caesar, who was worshipped as a god, would eventually be vanquished as the gospel was preached throughout the Roman Empire and men and women became convicted of sin, righteousness and judgment and would switch their allegiance from Caesar, the God, to Jesus Christ, the one true God. They would switch from Caesar to the King of Love and they would worship him as Saviour and Lord. They would worship Christ the King. Now it is true, we have, Suzanne and I have spent five days in Scotland and we spent the day before yesterday in Edinburgh and uh, we visited Edinburgh Castle. I embarrassed myself at the entrance to Edinburgh Castle when I saw the entry price on the notice board. I said, what? And it was expensive, but it's good value. You can spend the whole day in that, uh, in that castle. And there are about four um, regimental museums, and I, I love uh, military history. I was in my oils. I mean, Suzanne tolerated it all, but I, I was having a great time. And there was the one o'clock gun. We all stood and waited for that gun to be fired. It's fantastic. We also went into the, the main part of the castle where there is uh, a memorial to the, the Scottish War Dead, which was a very moving experience, I have to say. But also, um, we made a visit to see the, Scot the Scottish crown jewels. Scotland has her own crown jewels. They call it, they call the crown jewels the Honours of Scotland. Interesting phrase, interesting title, the Honours of Scotland. And they comprise of a crown, a sword, and a scepter. And those honours of Scotland, Scotland's crown jewels, were used at the coronation of Scotland's sovereigns. Beginning with um, Mary, Queen of Scots, she was the first to be uh, crowned uh, queen um, using the honours of Scotland the crown, the sword, and the scepter. She was nine months old. I'm trying to imagine a nine-month-old holding that sword, but there you are. The last Scottish sovereign to be crowned with the honours of Scotland was Charles II, who was also Charles II of England. Now, the honours of Scotland symbolise the monarch's sovereignty and authority, don't they? Well, not necessarily. 
Because even without the honours of Scotland, the sword, the scepter and the crown, the monarch is still the monarch. The monarch is still sovereign. He, she doesn't need the sword, the crown or the scepter to be monarch. They're nice symbols, they're nice trappings to have, but that is all that they are, symbols. They're not, in my opinion, the primary honours of Scotland. Well, I hear you asking, what are the primary honours of Scotland if it's not the crown, the sword and the scepter? I would suggest that the primary honours of Scotland is this. That which points and celebrates the monarch's sovereignty is the loyalty and the obedience of the Scottish people. Now, they don't happen to have a monarch solely for them. They share our monarch. That's a moot point. But that which makes a sovereign is not what they're wearing or what they're holding. It's whether people recognize that they have authority and they have majesty and royalty. So it is the people who are the honors of Scotland. Stay with me. Please stay with me. Now Jesus stood before Pilate without any honors, with no trappings of royalty. He wore no crown, he held no sword, he held no scepter. And yet he was and he is the sovereign Lord of creation. And Jesus Christ has decided on his honours, on that which will point to and celebrate his sovereignty. Now on the last day, as we've just said, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord on the last day, everyone will be the primary honours of Christ's sovereignty. But in the meantime, in the meantime, the primary honours of Christ are those who honour him with their lives. Don't get me wrong. Whether or not we honour him, it makes no difference. He is still King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But in our world... Amongst those people who do not record Christ's sovereignty and royalty, Jesus Christ has deigned certain primary honours. Who are the honours of Jesus Christ? Well, this is going to sound incredible, I know, but I think that this is true. The primary honour of Jesus Christ, those that speak, that which speaks of Christ's sovereignty and royalty, is me. I know. You, every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who honours Christ by their very lives, become the honours of Christ, and they speak to and they celebrate Christ's sovereignty and majesty and glory. We have been chosen by Christ to make Christ known in the world, so that people become aware of his sovereignty and his royalty. We who dare to name, who are glad to name, that Jesus Christ is Lord, those who dare and are glad to worship Christ as King. You've listened very well. I'm going to end now by asking you a few questions. So you don't have to write these down. You can make a mental note. And I'm being rhetorical so you don't have to shout out the answers unless you really want to. 
Let me ask you, do you acknowledge Jesus Christ to be the one who reigns supreme over all creation? That he is the ultimate authority over the affairs of the nations? As John puts it in his revelation, that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Do you acknowledge Jesus Christ to be so? Secondly, is Jesus Christ your king? Have you surrendered to his conquering love? And have you, through repentance and faith, made Jesus Christ, who is the king of love, the king whom you worship? Thirdly and finally, do you declare before the world that Jesus Christ is king? Are you one of the primary honours of Jesus Christ? As Yusuf Mordecai was and is, no matter the cost. Let's acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all creation. Let's serve Jesus with our lives. And let's worship Christ the King. Shall we pray? We are humbled, Heavenly Father, that you call us to be the honours of Jesus Christ, to be those who uh, speak to and celebrate uh, your Son's authority and sovereignty over all creation. We pray, gracious God, that we will be found faithful, truly, that we will indeed honour our Lord Jesus with our very life. We pray, gracious God, for brothers and sisters in other lands who, for whom it is ever so costly to name Jesus Christ as their Lord. We pray your protection upon them and that you will use them as you will use us to make Christ known in our generation to the glory of your name. Amen.